On March 29, 2021, the Biden administration looked toward the horizon of America's clean energy future, shaded its eyes from the light of brilliant possibility, and saw, glittering on the ocean, the towering potential of offshore wind. Today, the White House convened leaders from across the administration is ta- and is taking coordinated steps to announce a set of bold actions that will catalyze offshore wind energy and create good-paying union jobs. The president recognizes that a thriving offshore wind industry will drive new jobs and economic opportunity up and down the Atlantic coast, in the Gulf of Mexico, and in Pacific waters. Then White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki pointing to the White House fact sheet that said the Biden plan aimed for a target that would trigger more than $12 billion in capital investment and create 44,000 jobs by 2030. The president himself pledged that by 2030, a significant portion of the power flowing into U.S. energy grids would be coming from offshore wind. 30 gigawatts is enough to power 10 million homes. It'll help put us on a path to 100 percent clean energy. But here we are, more than two and a half years later. And if you look to the imagined offshore wind horizon now... There's virtually no glitter and hum of towering turbines. In fact, there's a whole lot of nothing. As one of our guests today notes, there are nearly 11,000 fully commissioned offshore wind turbines around the world. And here in the United States, there are a whopping seven. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Alas, not that long ago, the future for offshore wind and its advocates seemed so bright. A big step forward for the New Jersey wind port in Salem County. Governor Murphy is hosting a groundbreaking for the port. The wind port has the potential to bring up to 1,500 jobs and $500 million every year in economic activity to South Jersey. The Ocean Wind team is set to begin operations at the wind port in early 2024. That was New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy last year announcing what would be a critical first step in building some of the country's largest offshore wind farms. The project, known as Ocean Winds, was set to be developed by the Danish firm Orsted. And Governor Murphy had high hopes. We'll be creating over 200 pre-assembly loadout and stevedoring jobs, along with hundreds more indirect jobs. And overwhelmingly, we're we're a quintessential and proud union state. Overwhelmingly, all these jobs I'm talking about are organized labor jobs. Yeah. Or maybe not. Well, for months, they've been both a source of controversy and anticipation at the Jersey Shore. But now plans for two major offshore wind farms have suddenly been scrapped, leaving people on both sides of that issue with lots of questions about what, if anything, happens now. Just last month, Orsted announced it's canceling the projects entirely. Governor Murphy told the Philadelphia Inquirer that Orsted's decision was, quote, outrageous and calls into question the company's credibility and competence, end quote. Well, Orsted wasn't the only developer to scrap a multi-billion dollar offshore wind project. In the last year, two developers in Massachusetts have done the same. And these decisions come as, once again, the International COP Climate Conference gets underway. It's COP28 in Dubai this time, and the U.S. is still struggling with offshore wind. 
Though seen by policymakers as a critical part of America's clean energy future, opposition to offshore wind continues unabated, as do structural and legal challenges that make building maritime wind turbines harder here than almost anywhere else in the world. So, can offshore wind ever satisfy all stakeholders and contribute meaningfully to how this nation produces its power? Well, joining us today is Chris Oleth. She's executive director of the Special Initiative on Offshore Wind. It's an independent think tank advising corporate and government stakeholders. Chris, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much for having me, Magna. Okay, first of all, give us your impression about these fairly recent cancellations of what were supposed to be big offshore wind projects in the United States. Well, indeed, they do represent a significant bump in the road for the offshore wind vision and goals for the United States. Since the uh, onset of COVID, we've really seen some significant challenges, primarily around increasing interest rates, uh, challenges with inflation, a war in Ukraine that has misdirected supply chain resources, uh, you know, back to Europe, away from the United States, and significant challenges in the, uh, you know, the the government permitting processes. So I think, you know, there's really a, a combination of forces that have been making offshore wind particularly challenging in the U.S., but really challenges that we're seeing globally, uh, you know, for this technology. Okay, so can we just dig in a little bit more to each one of those? Because, I don't know, I always uh, walked around with the presumption that major capital projects should have been sort of the finances would have been more clearly thought out well before, uh, you know, I don't know, made uh, changes in uh, in global finance or uh, inflation problems in the United States. Is that not the case? Well, you, it's really a unique case with respect to offshore wind due to the long lead times between the time that an offshore wind developer commits to the price that they will build the project for versus when the financing actually closes for the project. In fact, several years will eclipse between those two milestones. And so the way I like to think about it is if you said to uh, a, a construction a builder, I would love for you to build me a home. And this was in 2019, and they gave you an estimate to build that home for you of $500,000, let's say. But then three years later, you came back and said, okay, great, I'm ready for you to build that home for me. There's absolutely no way that that builder could be, uh, you know, honoring essentially those prices particularly based on this environment. So offshore wind is unique and has this very long lead time, and that's, you know, gets to some of the the permitting and stakeholder challenges that exacerbate those two points in time. And in those two points of time, uh, you know, particularly at this time, we've seen the challenge with interest rates and inflation that developers never really could have, uh, you know, anticipated. Yeah, okay, so that that makes... A lot of sense then. What about, you said the war in Ukraine. What does that have to do, connect that with the uh, the cancellation of these wind projects? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you're interested in digging into this because I think it's something that we don't talk enough about in the sector. But there's a really complicated and international supply chain that is required to build offshore wind in the United States right now. And that is because it's a nascent industry. It's literally, you know, the first time we're doing something. It's a once in a generation opportunity to create a brand new industry in our nation. And so since the supply chain, which has been building offshore 
offshore wind in Europe for 35 years uh, since the 1990, early 1990s is now, well, had been essentially migrating over to the United States. Once the, the pressure to increase the amount of renewable energy in Europe came online, it was really important that um, the suppliers start focusing their energy on on Europe again, because all these European nations are trying to get off of Russian oil. And in order to do that, they need to increase the amount of renewable energy capacity that they're delivering. And so there's a much more sense of urgency in Europe, while at the same time, we're seeing the challenges in the U.S. So it's logical that the supply chain and offshore wind developers would start directing more attention back to their you know European projects. And that's part of the challenge we're seeing here. That is utterly fascinating that Vladimir Putin decides to invade Ukraine. And there's this domino effect that leads to the derailing of some or contributes to the derailing of offshore wind projects here in the United States. Wow. Well, but let me ask you then, uh, most of the uh, the successful offshore wind projects that I know of over the past couple of decades are either in Europe or Asia. Why wasn't there already sort of a uh, or the continuation of a effective supply chain or funding or whatever have you in Europe to to weather the the blow of a Russian invasion and a need to grow the number of turbines again. Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, in your uh, you know early remarks on the show, you were referencing the you know Biden commitment in 2021 to the 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in the United States. However, the story starts you know two decades ago, really in the U.S. with the Cape Wind project and the early projects are right around the year 2000. Uh, those projects were you know working in a, a, an equally challenging, if not even more challenging, environment with literally no supply chain in the United States. States, literally no, you know, sense of what the regulations should be. There wasn't even a permitting authority at that time. I covered uh, Cape Wind extensively. I know. Oh, excellent. I am very so familiar with the bizarro land aspects <laughs> yes. of that project. But go ahead, Chris. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, these projects have been, I think, uh, you know, our goals are getting bigger. The, you know, all the challenges are also getting bigger in the United States as we move through these challenges. And some, you know, some of the challenges were starting to be addressed through bringing the supply chain away from Europe and just, you know, kind of pulling it over so that they could grow the supply chain. Some manufacturing, for example, has been transitioned over to the United States at this point. But it, you know, really, uh, as the targets in Europe grow and the targets in the U.S. grow, there's just, you know, not enough supply chain to go around right now, not to mention Asia, which is also uh -huh. a huge focus for offshore wind at this time. Well, we've focused a lot on supply chain issues, which are important when it comes to any kind of major technological uh, development. But when we come back, I want to talk about a couple successful projects that have uh, been launched in the United States, and the legal and policy hurdles as well that are making it so difficult to um, realize this vision of offshore wind being a much more important part of uh, the U.S. power structure. So we'll cover all that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. 
We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're trying to get a deeper understanding about why it's so hard to complete offshore wind projects here in the United States. I'm joined by Chris Oleth, executive director of the Special Initiative on Offshore Wind. It's an independent think tank that advises corporate and government stakeholders in the industry. And I just want to quickly uh, give voice to Amanda Lefton. She's head of the East Coast for RWE Offshore. It's a wind energy developer. She was previously director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management for the Biden administration. And she doesn't see doom and gloom on the horizon. She says the current economic challenges are simply part of the growing pains of a new industry. This is not a unique problem for offshore wind. This is actually a challenge that really any large infrastructure uh, project is facing right now because of high inflation, because of these high interest rates. I think the difference for offshore wind is because we're just getting this industry off the ground floor. So we are really needing to build all of the supply chain and really the necessary infrastructure to support these projects. So as we do that and we face these challenges, it, it sort of is compounding. That was Amanda Lefton, former director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management for the Biden administration. Well, joining us now is Miriam Wasser. She's senior reporter with our home station, WBUR's climate and environment team, and she's reported extensively on offshore wind projects in Massachusetts. Hello there, Miriam. Hey, Magna. Thanks for having me. So I want to actually focus for a couple of minutes on, as I said earlier, successful Mm -hmm. projects that have actually gotten off the ground here. And you've reported on one quite a bit. Remind us what it's called and and, you know, how, how big and extensive is the vision for it? Sure. So Vineyard Wind yeah. is what you're talking about. So Vineyard Wind will be the first commercial scale offshore wind project in the U.S., right? So you said earlier we have seven turbines capable of generating 42 megawatts of power. Vineyard Wind is 62 turbines capable of generating 800 megawatts of power. So we're talking like massive scale compared to what exists now. And this is the first commercial-scale project. It was uh, f- got final approval in 2021 and has been under construction since. They have about five turbines installed in, in the ocean right now. They're actively building more. And we are expecting to get the first electrons from those projects, um, from those turbines, by the end of the year. By the end of this year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, you were able to go out and see some of the early building 
there, right? Or the the installation. I can't remember how were you actually able to go out did, offshore? No, I did not no, get okay. on a boat to go, but I went to New Bedford, which is in southeast Massachusetts, which is the big specialized port area where they have done all the staging uh-huh. for this. So they you know, imported all these turbine parts, started doing a little bit of pre-assembly onshore, and then they load them up on boats and send them out to the project site. So tell, tell us a little bit more about those staging sites, though, because I think uh, even understanding how large those are gives us a sense as to really how big the projects are once they're fully constructed offshore. Yeah. So this was a site that the state of Massachusetts developed a couple years ago when they really decided to go all in on offshore wind. It is specially designed for offshore wind. Um, And these, you know, these parts are huge and they're super duper heavy. And so you need like special concrete foundations and you you can't just like stage an offshore wind project anywhere. You have to build a specialized thing. And so you go out there a couple, you know, I went out there a couple years ago and it just looks like this like big empty parking lot. Right now it is filled with these massive turbine parts. So tower components that are over 100 feet high. There are these stacks of blades that are literally the length of a football field. There are the nacelles, which is sort of the like generator, the like brain component. They're hundreds of feet high too. They weigh thousands and tons of, you know, this stuff is huge. And so you just go out there and... I don't know. For me personally, I've been reporting on this for years and people have been telling me for years how big this stuff was. But just seeing it like in real life, it blows your mind. Like these things are going to be ginormous. Yeah. You know, just hearing you say, I want to repeat it because it's such a gripping description that uh, each blade, right, Mm -hmm. of uh, one of these offshore wind turbines is as long as a football field. Yes. 352 feet. Each one. Each one. Wow. Okay, so that means that the towers themselves are multiple times that high, right? Yeah, they rise hundreds of feet into the air. Okay. You know, so what's really interesting about this is, as we heard earlier, the Biden administration and uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy both really put the jobs as Mm -hmm. central to why they want to develop offshore wind, let alone the possibility of cleaner energy. And we've got a clip here from some of your reporting of one of the workers uh, on the Vineyard Wind Project. I've had a certain amount of pride with every project that I've ever worked on, whether it's a, a school or a hospital, but... This is something different, and to be part of like the first commercial wind farm in the country, um, it's exciting, and I'm looking forward to it. So tell us who that is, Miriam, and, and also how many jobs are expected to be created, what it means to the communities uh, on coastal Massachusetts. Yep, so that voice we just heard from, that is a guy named Billy Veets, who lives in Roxbury, and he's an iron worker. So I met him a couple of years ago at a training class that I went to at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy that where they were training all different union workers to work at heights. So they spent a day practicing with harnesses and going up and down ladders and safety features. And the idea is you're going to all these people who have on land skills are suddenly going to have to do all this stuff offshore. So they've been practicing that. And Billy was really interesting because he um, he was really excited. I mean, good to have a job, right? But excited about the clean energy that was coming too. He's particularly worried about climate change. And in the past, he told me he's worked on fossil fuel projects. He's worked oh, yeah. on a lot of natural gas projects. And he didn't feel great about it. So this was this was like something new. And yes, you mentioned jobs. Jobs is a huge thing here in Massachusetts, as is the redevelopment of port cities. Uh-huh. So places like New Bedford, Salem, these are these former 
big industrial fishing hubs that have been kind of downtrodden in the last few years. And they there's all this opportunity to revitalize them for offshore wind. Mm -hmm. You know, as you heard earlier, I was and Chris, I'll come back to you in a second here. But I was uh, half joking with Chris about having covered the failed project that was Cape Wind. Mm -hmm. And um, in you know, in that case, there were so many factors that went into undermining Cape Wind from being built. We obviously had stakeholders, some of whom were very powerful, who opposed it. There was the finances, the per, uh, the, the virtually non-existent permitting process, et cetera. Were similar challenges uh, evident with the wind project you're talking about, and how were they overcome? Um, so Vineyard Wind did face a number of challenges, particularly under the Trump administration. There were a number of delays I think also just being the first project, the first project to wind its way through this massive permitting process, right? There are learning curves. I, you know, since then, five other projects have been approved and things are moving faster. I think, you know, the federal government is is figuring out how to do all of this in in real time. But yes, Vineyard Wind faced some issues, but it did not face a lot of the issues that Cape Wind. Uh, okay, so the the industry and and policy, I guess, had moved forward a little bit since, I don't know, the decade plus, more than a decade since Cape Wind. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it also is farther offshore, so you're not going to see it the same way that people were going to see Cape Wind. And I think that that feels like a silly point, but is actually a pretty important factor to mention. People will famously remember Senator Ted Kennedy being viciously opposed to uh, to Cape Wind in part because he could see it from his coastal Massachusetts house. Well, Chris Olith, um, th- thanks for listening along with me because we like to focus on successes as long as, uh, 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 along with, you know, trying to understand what the challenges are. So what lessons do you hear from what Miriam is saying about how uh, the Vineyard Wind Project has gotten at least this far in the United States? Yes, so many lessons learned. And I think really, you know, we are experiencing the birth of an industry, which is, uh, you know, something that, uh, at least for me, (laughs) I've never done before. And I think so these are some of the growing pains that are to be expected, and they they do take some time to work out. I just also wanted to mention another great success story, which at a slightly smaller scale is the South Fork offshore wind project, which is being built by Orsted, and that's happening out of the port of New London, Connecticut. Uh And so if you're on Route 95 or you're on the Amtrak, you will have the opportunity to also see these wonderful, huge components uh, stretching up into the sky, and I do highly recommend to your listeners to go check it out, either at New Bedford or New London, because, it, you know, it's it's something like you've never seen and super exciting. But in terms of, you know, you know, for example, some of the things the states are learning, how can they work together to um, help with some of these supply chain challenges? We see leadership in the state of Massachusetts, along with the states of Rhode Island and Connecticut, in a really solutions-oriented approach to um, developing a shared Uh, procurement mechanism. So the way it works is that the states are buying the power from these offshore wind developers. I'm, you know, kind of oversimplifying. But in each case, the developers enter into a contract with each state to buy the power. And so we see one example of a really solutions-oriented approach from this multi-state MOU where Connecticut 
Rhode Island and Massachusetts are going to be issuing a joint procurement. And what this does, I think, is uh, provides a regional approach to supply chain development and management because, uh, you know, what we've seen is each state really wanting their piece of the offshore wind supply chain pie. Uh And all of the, uh, you know, all of the supply chain manufacturers and others will tell you that there needs to be a more regional and organic approach to developing a supply chain. You know, if each state needs to have a turbine manufacturing plant and each state needs to have its own large port, that's typically not how a supply chain organically develops, and it's increasing the costs for the industry. Uh-huh. So, so we see the states really being creative with this multi-state approach. Miriam, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add, too, that I think one thing states have learned along the way is that we need to build more flexibility into these contracts that we're signing. So, you know, there's, there are these 20-year set price contracts for electricity. And as we saw, inflation rise, you know, like things got, got wonky. And so in this next iteration of contracts that are uh, requests for proposals that are going out, solicitations, we've actually seen a number of states change how they're doing their contracts and they're allowing project developers to index things to inflation. Oh, interesting. So basically like you won't run into this problem the same way and it could, you know, it could end up making projects more expensive if inflation gets worse, but the other way around if things get a lot better, it can make the projects mm-hmm. cheaper for mm-hmm. consumers too. Well, you know what? This is really really fascinating. And as, as I said, I like to learn from successes as much as we like to learn from mistakes, but I do want to press a giant old pause button right now because Look, there are very specific reasons, even though we're talking about what policymakers have learned, why it's so hard to build offshore wind in this in this country. And a major one is that there is resistance from from really important groups of Americans. I mean, you've reported on this extensively, Miriam. Fishing industry has deep concerns about where and how the mm-hmm. turbines are are put up, and those uh, you know the fishing industry is is equally important in the states that we've been talking about. Um, Environmental um, groups, some of them really uh, severely oppose offshore wind. Um, We were, I was looking at some reports about how, you know, there was concern about what being, building offshore wind would do for a very endangered species of whales. Um, And there's a concern about birds and uh, marine noise, et cetera. I mean, these groups are, they have, significant concerns that they have been bringing to the table, putting into courts, Chris, et cetera. I don't see how uh, those stakeholders and their concerns have, have, there is, have there been any adequate moves by offshore wind developers to, um, to take into consideration those, those uh, concerns. Well, I think absolutely. Uh, the developers and as along with the state and federal permitting agencies work very closely with those stakeholders. And it really starts with the siting process. And that's responsible at the federal level through the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. So at the first take, when these offshore areas are designated for offshore wind development, the Bureau is looking at the what they're calling the least conflicted or most de-risked areas. So they're already siting based on where there's the least amount of fishing conflict, where you see the least amount of whale migration, and all those things. So at the first pass, we are already looking to de-conflict these offshore wind areas. And then as you work through the process, there's very, very robust permitting required by various federal agencies and state agencies that are going to require that 
all the environmental thresholds are met through the permitting process. And so when you see a project like Vineyard Wind moving into construction, you know it's been through a very robust permitting cycle. There, of course, have been lawsuits and challenges, but each time, uh, you know, each time so far that they've been defeated because I think the federal regulators are doing a great job and they're doing their homework and the developers are doing a, the, the right thing in making sure they're building projects that are consistent with those environmental standards. Well, let me ask you, Miriam. I mean, you spoke with members of the fishing industry, right, mm-hmm. it, here in Massachusetts. Can you just articulate what their concerns were were, or are and if they were satisfied with the kinds of moves that uh, that regulators were making to take into those those concerns into account? Yeah. And, and I just want to add, too, I think it's really important to differentiate between the concerns about whales and the concerns about the fishing industry, because I think that there's science that will tell us different things about each of those. But when it comes to fishing, um, fishermen are concerned about a number of things. They're concerned about turbines being in areas where they fish and not being, you know, and, and affecting the ecosystem there. They're concerned about navigational issues. So, and, and you know, Chris mentioned things that developers are doing. One thing that Vineyard did, and I think most other developers will do in the future too, is they said, all right, we're going to put our project on a mile by mile grid, which will give you enough space to go in between the turbines. Um, I think that satisfied some fishermen, not others. I did a big story about fishing and offshore wind a couple of years ago, and I think the big takeaway for me was that the large-scale, big-time fishermen are going to be fine. They mm. can move elsewhere. This, these projects are not in the area where they fish, but it's, but the it's small guys fishermen. that are going to yeah. be affected. Um, and we've seen a number of developers hire fishermen to help them with some of the tra- uh, some of the science that they're doing now. Um, and you know, I, I've talked to some people who were very opposed to this project early on and are now kind of on board. I think I think there's a, a mix, and and it really remains to be seen how this affects uh, the fishing industry. Okay. Well, you know, um, Chris, we've just got a minute before we have to take our next break. Let's. Let's zoom out globally a little bit here. Can you just describe to me uh, how uh, we mentioned the seven fully commissioned wind turbines offshore in the United States in comparison to how many in the rest of the world? Yeah, there are really well over 10,000 turbines that are now spinning in Europe and Asia. Okay. So when we come back, I want to ask you, what are they doing differently there? that's made it possible for them to build so many more. That's what we'll talk about when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. A new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig.
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we get back to today's conversation, I just want to reach out to everybody listening and ask, are you a pharmacist or a pharmacy technician? Because next week we're working on a show uh, about the state of the pharmacy industry, particularly from workers' points of view, because you may have seen in, excuse me, in your local neighborhood uh, ads for pharmacy workers wanted. So how are you feeling about your job? Do you feel burned, burned out or overworked? What does day-to-day look like for you um, working at your local pharmacy? Let us know your story. You can record a message on the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't have it, just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. Or you can leave us a message at 617-353-0683. That's for next week. It's going to be a show about the state of labor in the pharmacy sector in this country. Today, we're talking about why it's still so challenging in comparison to other nations to build offshore wind projects in the United States. I'm joined by Miriam Wasser. She's a senior reporter here at our home station of WBUR. She's on the climate and environment team. And Chris Olith is also with us. She's executive director of the Special Initiative on Offshore Wind. And in a minute or two, we're going to be hearing from Ali Zaidi, the White House National Climate Advisor. But Chris, you know, uh, there's so many interesting little nooks and crannies about the offshore wind industry that I think I accidentally spent much more time on some of those nooks and crannies (laughs) than on the big question here, which is if you could point to, let's say, two or three of the major differences between Europe, Asia and the United States that can explain why almost all of those more than 10,000 turbines are not offshore of the United States, what would those differences be? The primary difference that I would cite, and uh, it's an unfortunate one and a bit of a heartbreaking one, is the fact that in Europe there was such an early adoption of the threat of climate change. There were, you know, many countries in Europe who were recognizing the, you know, the the potential threats, the changing climate, and um, also, you know, the challenges that other types of energies posed to the environment beyond just climate change. And, you know, I would offer that in the United States, we haven't really taken those threats seriously up until, you know, quite recently, and sometimes we still don't. And I think it was that imperative that enabled the European nations to be the first mover, the first wind farm installed in 1991 off the coast of Denmark. So, you know, they were moving early, they were moving with conviction, and, uh, you know, we were kind of moving around the edge thinking, okay, well, this can be another way to produce power, but not really associating the deep sense of purpose that offshore wind can bring. Okay, so an early adoption of the truth of climate change, which then led to the development of the uh, offshore wind industry. Exactly. Like really, I think, creating that sense of urgency and prioritization that we didn't have here at that time. What about permitting? Absolutely. I mean, it was really, you know, a a more centralized and still continues to be a more centralized opportunity. Uh, You know, in the U.S., there are so many different agencies that, you know, they're led by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in the Department of Interior. And, you know, they are the, the lead federal agency on this. But for each offshore wind farm, there can be up to 27 different federal and state agencies that are required to consult and provide permits to an offshore wind project. And how does that compare to to a place like like Denmark? Let's stick with them for a second. Yeah, well, you know, in those places, they have, you know, a more centralized approach to, uh, you know, to processing permits and also giving value to, uh, 
to the benefits of certain types of projects like offshore wind. In the United States, I would argue we're perhaps not recognizing all of the climate and clean energy and health, in fact, benefits that offshore wind will provide. I don't claim to be an expert on Danish permitting, but, you know, recognizing that at the end of the day, this is, you know, what the, the results we're seeing. Okay. And then the thir- a third one, which I want to quickly ask you about since it's come up earlier in the conversation, is financing around projects. Is it different there? Are they more insulated from the kinds of, uh, you know, sudden changes in in global financial markets that you, we describe the U.S. as not being fully insulated from? Somewhat. I mean, we're, you know, the, the U.S. is not alone in its challenges. Um, Amanda Lefton referenced earlier, you know, that this sector of offshore wind is facing a lot of the same type of challenges around financing with interest rates, with inflation. Um, and, in fact, around the world, projects are seeing the same thing. So, you know, we saw just, uh, you know, just a few months back that when the UK uh, offered an opportunity for developers to bid into offshore wind, they received no bids. And that mm. was the first time that had ever happened in that nation because offshore wind developers were saying, hey, this is not enough for us to be able to develop these projects financially and do it in an economically sound way. So we are not alone, unfortunately, in the economic challenges of offshore wind of this time. And some of the solutions-oriented approaches that Miriam mentioned earlier are being applied uh, globally to try to, you know, bring this industry forward. Got it. Okay, so so Chris and um, Miriam, hang on here for a second. I just want to tease you a little with, I, I'm going to dangle the Jones Act in front of everyone a little bit later, <laughs> but I do want to welcome Ali Zaidi into the conversation. Ali is the White House National Climate Advisor. Welcome to On Point. Hi there. Good to be on. So let's just get a, a, a reality check here, first of all, Mr. Zaidi, if we can. Is the Biden administration's goal of installing 30 gigs, 30 gigawatts of offshore capacity by uh, 2030, so you've got seven, really, yeah, seven years left, uh, possibly a little bit less, is that still realizable? Absolutely. From day one, the president has not only set an ambitious goal, he's brought the full throw weight of the federal government to pursue that goal brought every agency to the table, worked with partners at the state and local level, catalyzed private investment in the tens of billions of dollars. We now have a supply chain that reaches coast to coast, all 50 states with a piece of the upside in offshore wind. And we've got a project pipeline that allows us to see not just to 30 gigawatts, but beyond. So we are focused on this. We are delivering against this. Six massive projects greenlit for construction, many more to come. Help me understand something, because what I was hearing earlier in this very program is that uh, an inadequate or lack of robustness in the supply chain is actually one of the issues that's hampering the fulfillment of uh, of offshore wind projects. But you're saying there's a, a adequate supply chain and you mentioned all 50 states. I'm not clear on what you mean. For a number of years, uh, the United States had walked slowly. I think one of your guests was talking about how, um, you know, in this jurisdiction versus others, uh, folks have been more comfortable uh, denying the climate crisis. And the reality is when you deny the climate crisis, you also deny the economic opportunity for the jobs, the workers, and the manufacturing capacity that comes with tackling the climate crisis. 
you know, before President Biden took office, there was basically no offshore wind industry. And there was an administration here in Washington focused on keeping it that way. Since the president's taken office, we've got we've seen steel go in the water, turbines get hoisted up, billions of dollars of bids to create offshore wind, not just off the East Coast, but off the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf of Maine, the California coast and the coast of Oregon. And to your question about supply chain itself, yeah, it's ramping up. It takes 18, 24, 36 months to build these factories. So when I say we will meet our goal for 2030, I mean we will meet our goal for 2030. And we're ramping up the supply chain aggressively to do that. But let's be clear, the actions of the previous administration to stifle this nascent industry kept dollars from flowing into communities, kept factories shuttered, kept ports idled. And that's the result that we're seeing today, vulnerable supply chains, a lack of ability to robustly supply. But that's a lagging indicator. The forward-looking indicator is this. Since the president took office, signed the Inflation Reduction Act, we've seen over 100 factories be announced. Those are now under construction, and they will produce the products we need to meet our goals. Okay. Acknowledged and understood about the previous administration. But to your point, I am more interested in those forward indicators and, in fact, more deeply concerned about uh, evidence of uh, plans for forward action. Because, for example, Chris Oleth, who you just mentioned, she just said before you came on that one of the the challenges in uh, more quickly realizing or get, or getting uh, offshore wind turbines built uh, in U.S. waters is that there's something like 27 federal and state agencies that are involved in the permitting in the permitting process here. Can the Biden administration do anything to streamline that process such such that it accelerates the time between you know the contracting of uh, of an offshore wind project and you know turbines actually going in the water? So great that you raise that issue. Um, and your uh, guest raised Denmark as an example, and I think Denmark has been a jurisdiction that's led on this. But even today, uh, as we speak, Denmark has uh, over a dozen agencies that weigh in on any single decision around the permitting of offshore wind. You have to get three different certificates to be able to construct a project in Denmark. The thing about Denmark that makes this work well is that they have a one-stop shop. The DEA in Denmark is the place where they centralize all of these reviews. It's the one place a company shows up, even though it's dealing with a lot of statutes, a lot of requirements, a lot of analysis that needs to be done. Yeah. And I'm, so at I'm, the beginning, at the beginning of this administration, we took that model in. We now have a one-stop shop. We have streamlined our permitting approach. We've hired more folks to build that hub and that capability. Now, once you submit to one agency, all the agencies leverage that same analysis, and that's what's allowed us to move quickly. Our environmental laws are our strength, and our ability to deliver them effectively will unleash economic activity. That's what we're seeing thanks to the president's leadership. Okay, so that's interesting to, to note, and I appreciate that. Chris Olaf, let me just turn back to you very quickly here. Um, I can hear the the optimism and the determination 
in Ali Zaidi's voice here. Do you share that same optimism that the Biden administration can reach that 30 gigawatts goal by 2030, realistically? I think it'll be a challenge. Um, you know, it's certainly, you know, we're up for a challenge as a nation. We've shown it in the past. And, you know, I look forward to realizing that. I, I certainly hope we can, but there are significant hurdles in doing that. And several independent analysis have shown recently that just getting through the supply chain pipeline, getting the ships needed uh, and the ports needed together in order to just practically build out these projects in time, it will be a challenge. But hey, I also don't think that if 30 gigawatts aren't built by 2030, I don't really know that that's, you know, some magic number that we need to meet. If it's 2031, 2032, we're doing our best to advance the projects. And I don't really know that focusing on one specific year is particularly all that critical, frankly. Look, and I totally I agree with that sentiment of there are challenges in front of us. Um, the president uh, often uh, reminds us it's never a good bet to bet against the United States of America. And I think that's what we're seeing everywhere we go. I went with the president to Philadelphia Shipyard, where they're building one of the several dozen purpose-built vessels to service this industry. Um, he's traveled to Massachusetts, uh, where once there was the largest coal plant in the Northeast, now is a plug-in point uh, for offshore wind. Um, we've talked to the folks in South Carolina who are actually making that cabling cord for vineyard wind, an industry that wasn't here in the United States. So we're seeing this uh, 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 challenge be identified, uh, be uh, we're clear eyed about it, uh, and we're confident that if we all work together, we can get it done. OK, Uh Point taken that maybe landing at 30 gigawatts by 2030, the specific year doesn't really matter. But on behalf of the American people, when administrations make promises, there is the expectation that at least the promise can be close to being kept. And we're still talking about in the next six years or so a, uh, a, a multi-factor increase in the amount of offshore wind produced in this in the United States. And I'm still seeing... Uh, obstacles that are large enough to make even getting near that goal seem virtually impossible. And it seems especially pressing given that we, we started the show with a cancellation of two major projects in New Jersey. So, you know, I just think what else can or should the Biden administration be doing to be sure that even if the president isn't even isn't in office after the 2024 election, that uh, offshore wind can continue its development in the United States, Ali. So I just want to um, go a little bit to the beginning part of the premise of your of what you laid out, because I'm I'm happy to respond to most of it. But I I I don't think we're setting a goal that is um, pie in the sky. I think it's going to be steel in the water, and I think we've got the receipts to show that. You talked about the projects that have. Um, been suspended, uh, where, by the way, those companies are looking at uh, rebids and approaches to get those projects going again. But what you didn't note is that just in the last month, Dominion Energy, uh, which is building the single largest offshore wind project, said that they're not only on track from a timing perspective, they're actually on the low end of their cost estimate with 92% of their costs hedged. What you didn't note is in South Fork, um, they're lifting up uh, the turbines into the sky and they plan to have electricity flowing onto the grid. 
in just a matter of weeks. So, um, you know, I think what we've got to do is take a portfolio look uh, across the board and think about, is the portfolio sufficient to get us to the scale and ambition that we need? And the answer is yes, there is a, this is not a qualitative sense. We know that there are 47 gigawatts um, that are in the pipeline. Um, we know that um, uh, over 20 gigawatts have uh, are already have a uh, path to being mm. uh, green lit for construction. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Zadi, I'm so sorry, but I've got to take it back from you there. I just, the clock tells me what to do, unfortunately. So I hope you can forgive me. But Ali Zadi, White House National Climate Advisor, thank you so much for joining us today. And Miriam Wasser, senior reporter here at our home station of WBUR. Thank you as well. And Chris Olith, Executive Director of the Special Initiative on Offshore Wind. My gratitude to you. And I did tease about the Jones Act, but it is so fascinating that I'm hoping we'll do a full hour on it sometime in the future. But until then, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point.